Okay, hello and welcome uh, to BJGP Interviews. And I've got with me all of our associate editors this month. I've got Sam, Tom and Nada. So we'll say hello to them in a minute. Before we get going and talking about some of our highlights from this month, um, the, uh, the main theme of the journal this month was cancer. Uh, and our cover image um, was sent to us by Paul, Dr. Paul Schatzberger. And I just want to comment on it because um, it's a really nice, evocative picture. And, you know, well, plenty of us who are visiting people at home. And this one's actually of a GP, Jeanette Mc, uh, McCorrigan, um, visiting a patient in uh, 1988. And it has featured in the BJGP in the past. It was first published in 1998. Um, and uh, Paul wrote to us, I was inspired by John Berger's book, A Fortunate Man, the story of a dedicated country doctor, illustrated by the evocative photography of Jean Moore. To photograph similarly committed GP colleagues working in inner city Sheffield during the 1980s. For me, this image is timeless, reflecting the unique and special quality of the GP patient relationship. And um, I think we can all agree with that. But um, there's a footnote I'd like to add as well that we did hear that um, sadly, Dr. Paul Schatzberger died in December 2020 um, after submitting this photograph. Um, so we just wanted to make a note of that and to thanks to his wife for giving us permission uh, to use this image on the front cover for this month. As I said, these... The issue this month is about cancer, so we're going to go on and talk a little bit about the papers that we've got in that, um, and we'll go through some of our highlights with each of the associate editors. Um, I think, um, oh, I'm not sure where to start, um, who would like to start today? I think maybe we've got some editorials we want to go on to initially, just to kind of, which point in the direction of some of our research as well. I'll maybe go to you, Tom, to talk about one editorial in particular. Thanks, and it's great to have us all together on a podcast for the first time. Yeah, no, yeah, is this the first time we've managed all, all four this of us? This is the first is time all four of us, so that's great. So, Thanks for having us, Ewan. Yeah, so um, cancer, this is an area um, which few of us have got research interest in, and I'd, I'd just like to draw attention to uh, Professor John Emery's editorial. Uh, John is a GP and uh, Professor of Primary Care and Cancer Research at Melbourne University, and he's really come, gives a really good overview of some of the cancer papers within this latest edition, and he covers the kind of three main areas of symptom awareness, awareness interventions, um, gut feelings and clinical intuition. We've talked a little bit about gut feelings before and how actually we can actually quantify those and how important they are actually um, even irrespective of a patient's symptoms, I've got a feeling of if a patient's unwell, has a, has a predictive value for cancer or other serious pathology. And also the evolving area of risk prediction models. So some of us may have seen um, Willie Hamilton's risk assessment tools and there's um, Julissy Hippesley-Cox's work on Q cancer. And this is further work uh, looking at using CPRD and Q research database. And um, I think John really nicely covers these articles and really sets the landscape around the impact of COVID on cancer, missing sort of uh, reduction in patients preferred for cancer, maybe these missing, missing cancer patients and how we're going to go forward into recovery um, and not lose some of the excellent work and the, and the foundations that we've built on over, over actually primarily built on excellent primary care research in this area where we've made improvements in patient outcomes. Yeah. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the, um, which in research papers in particular should we highlight here to the, there's, cause there's several, 
as you say, yeah, the, the the and I think Sam might cover a couple of them on risk prediction models. I really liked actually just going through uh, targeted encouragement of GP consultations. Now, there's always a debate about this, and I know everyone's under really real pressure, and some of us may have seen in the adverts. I remember seeing some adverts on, on the look as I live in London, seeing them on the tube about sort of ask your you know speak to your doctor if you've got three weeks of cough or if you see blood in your pee. So that's the kind of national be clear on cancer campaigns. So evidence on those is is mixed. I mean, they do encourage people to attend primary care. However, there's always a criticism that they're an untargeted public health intervention and maybe they're worried well, maybe sort of you might encourage people who are kind of accessing primary care already. Uh, and we know how stretched people are. So there's going to be a debate about this. This is was a really nice uh, paper. and Actually, it was a randomized control trial in primary care. So great. You know, it's actually, I'd like to see more primary care trials. And this was a targeted uh, simple intervention, actually, but targeted in deprived populations. Uh, and they took uh, 23 GP practices in rural and ar- urban areas of London and Manchester. Uh, and then it was a, a very simple mail out to patients, uh, really reflecting on possible red flag symptoms or weight loss or, or vague symptoms um, as a simple mail out, encouraging them to attend primary care in particular focusing on those who are non-attenders, maybe had high risks, maybe had missed appointments, and also when the deprived 20% of the population. So, you know, actually really neat and actually rather than just a generic all-encompassing sort of uh, beacon on cancer campaign, it's actually targeted to the people who probably need those messages the most, who are most deprived patients, maybe not attending, missing appointments. And that did, um, so they had uh, over 1,500 patients randomised to the uh, 783 to the intervention, 730 to control. And they did so statistically higher rate of consultation intervention arm. Um, however, no difference in the total number of patients consulting. So really, I guess the take-home message is, this is doable. It would be a simple, cheap intervention. And as a targeted approach, getting maybe some of those patients in appropriately, I think possibly could work without actually massively increasing GP workload. Yeah, they were at pains to point out. Um, so we had a podcast episode with Jean-Pierre Larker and Willie Hamilton just recently on this. And um, they were at pains to point out that it didn't work out as an awful lot extra per, like the very summary at the end, Jean-Pierre went through the the implications for the workload for a GP. And that was really interesting because it, it it was a minimal amount, but potentially, you know, of course, if you scale that up across the whole regions and a whole country, yeah. across yeah. the United Kingdom, it could make a significant difference to getting people who are otherwise not well engaged with primary care to come forward with potential cancer symptoms. Yeah, and I think even more now with COVID, you know, we did see this big reductions during the lockdowns into wait till we wait, it has bounced back and it's getting back to sort of near pre-pandemic levels. But that still means we have, you know, data modeling is suggesting missing tens of thousands of cancer patients. So actually in this recovery phase that we're now going to be in, actually to primary care networks, CCGs, ICSs need to think about this kind of targeted approach to patients who might be reluctant to attend or or, or come to primary care with, with, with worrying symptoms. Yeah. Um, I don't know, Nada, Sam, have you got any comment on that paper at all, although these, this, that kind of the current situation in terms of cancer diagnosis? Well, I think it's um, interesting to reflect also about targeting clinicians. And there's been a bit in the media in the past week about um, lung cancer diagnoses amongst non-smokers. And uh, there's a new campaign out about targeting clinicians and uh, getting them to run more investigations in patients who come with symptoms but um, are not smokers. So I think this is sort of an interesting 
approach towards things, you know, targeting different people in general practice, targeting patients, clinicians, and, um, you know, I think it's probably one way to just raise awareness amongst patients and GPs. And uh, it'd be interesting to see if there's future work going to be done amongst uh, randomizing clinicians to something similar to this. We're going to come back to cancer a little bit again in a minute, particularly some Sam's got some papers he wants to point out. But maybe I'll stop with you for the moment, Nard, and you could tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about some of your highlights from this May issue. Yes. So, yeah, I thought it was interesting. There's there's two articles in this issue that uh, look at suicide management in primary care. So, uh, Fraz Mogul and um, Carolyn Chu Graham, amongst others, um, wrote an editorial about suicide prevention in COVID. Um, and obviously, mental health and COVID has been a pressing topic Um even today, I was uh, watching the news and there's been an ONS report that has shown that self-reported rates of depression are higher this year compared to last year. Um, though, interestingly, diagnoses have not increased in general practice, which raises a question about whether people are consulting with their GPs with mental health difficulties, whether they're sort of in, um, similar to people coming in with uh, cancer symptoms, which is something that we have discussed uh, previously, but just whether people are uh, attending with mental health symptoms as well. Um, and in this editorial, um, they talk about sort of uh, the ongoing uh, impact of COVID, whether there's going to be a sort of a tsunami of uh, new mental health diagnoses relating to COVID and actually whether long-term economic difficulties, long COVID, things like that will actually increase suicide rates in the aftermath of COVID. So it's not just about looking at patients who are impacted directly by COVID, but also the indirect economic and mental health impacts of COVID in the future. So I think that's something interesting to be aware of. And they're highlighting uh, clinical features that GPs should be looking out for in primary care amongst patients with mental health difficulties in this this editorial. Um, And then the second paper was Claire Norman in the Life and Time section. And she just reflects about how clinicians ask about suicide and self-harm and moving past clinician discomfort. Um, and she notes that in the four patients that she asks about suicide, she gets a 100% hit rate in patients saying, actually, yeah, I have thought about suicide. And that just underlines to me the importance of asking the question and not being uncomfortable with that. Clearly a lot of concern uh, in and around COVID particularly and the, the mental health impact. You mentioned, I should mention very briefly there as well, because one of the articles that um, stuck out to me was the one about long COVID as well mm-hmm. uh, in children, long COVID in children. You mentioned long COVID uh, and the, just to which are, and there's some, there's been some media attention on this as well recently, long COVID in children and the potential effects. And I think particularly at this stage of the pandemic where actually it's the younger folk and obviously when we're still getting through adults at the moment in terms of vaccination, but particularly the effects of having some COVID circulating in children and teenage and adolescent populations. And okay, the the risk of serious illness is very small, but actually we've still got a lot of concern around long COVID and the support that's needed. And there's a nice article in Life and Times there as well from um, Francis Simpson, uh, Simpson um, as well as Carolyn Chu Graham as well, um, and others too. Um, so I think they, they all fit together nicely as well. I'll go back to you, Sam. Maybe at yep. this point, tell us a little bit about your research papers, the ones that caught your eye. Yeah, so as Tom mentioned and, and John Emery's editorial touches on, we have two uh, clinical risk prediction models published in this month, uh, both related to cancer. 
both relating to very different tumors, though. So we've got a paper from uh, Konstantinos Koshiaris and the team in Oxford looking at a clinical prediction tool identifying people at high risk of myeloma, which is not a very common cancer in primary care and, and a very difficult one to diagnose, which is why rules like this are quite useful for helping us picking up on these early. We have had some previous work, I believe in the BJGP, talking about ruling myeloma out using full blood count and plasma viscosity. But this model goes further, including some of the more common symptoms and demographics and other blood tests to think about that can help give GPs clues as to whether a myeloma might be present or not. And the authors looked at over 1.28 million eligible patients within CPRD, and they still only found 737 cases of myeloma in a two-year period, which kind of emphasises how uncommon this cancer is and, and why it's so challenging to diagnose. And they you know, they put all these symptoms and blood test results into their model, and it, it shows a reasonable level of prediction for people at high risk of myeloma. But they do point out that this is just the tool that they've developed, but it needs further work to show that it's accurate in other relevant primary care databases and then go on to sort of think about how it can be implemented in primary care. And that was a really key emphasis of John's editorial as well, was that you know these, these rules are useful, but we need the evidence to show that actually GPs can engage with it, that it integrates well into our electronic healthcare records, and that it has impact on patient outcomes, which a lot of these decision tools and rules don't have the evidence for yet, although some is coming. Um, the other risk prediction paper was a very different tumor, it was about prostate cancer. And that was uh, published by Julia Hippersley-Cox and Carol Copeland. And they developed a prediction tool for prostate cancer in men without symptoms. And they used a different research database, which is Q-Research based on uh, EMIS practices. And they have advanced this a little bit more in that they have validated their algorithm as well as uh, developed it in this database set. And they've compared it to using PSA alone, which we talked a bit about in our last podcast. And if you add in other clinical factors, such as uh, age, deprivation, ethnicity, uh, a lot of the relevant risk factors you think about, and some you wouldn't think about, such as diabetes, body mass index, serious mental illness. Uh, and they found that their equation, again, performed better than PSA alone. Um, but as mentioned, you know, that's all well and good to develop these rules, but we need to see, do they actually impact on clinical outcomes? Can GPs engage with them? Um, and Tom mentioned um, the RATS tools developed by the team in Exeter, and they are actually being trialled at the moment in what's called the ERICA trial, and which is actually going to look at whether tools like these that various groups have developed actually make a difference for patient outcomes and, and are actually used by clinicians. It'll be interesting to see what those studies pull out. Any comments, anyone, on those risk prediction models? Well, I think, you know, I think this issue highlights that there um, sort of points at which GPs are responsible for the care of people who have cancer. So there's the point at diagnosis and uh, initiating tests in order to diagnose patients with different types of cancers. And then there's the paper on prevalence of erectile dysfunction amongst male survivors of cancer. So picking up on another time point where GPs probably are responsible for picking up the care of this cohort of patients with cancer. Um, and I think that this, this paper that uh, was written by Damiano Pizzol, which is a systematic review looking and meta-analysis looking at, um, uh, I think, 43 papers, 
looks at the prevalence of erectile dysfunction and finds that it's actually really common in people who have had prostate cancer. So up to 40% of people who've survived prostate cancer will suffer from erectile dysfunction. And thinking about how GPs can be involved in the aftercare of these this cohort of patients. So um, the authors of this paper touch upon talking about potential long-term effects of cancer treatment and cancer um, at the time of diagnosis, so planning ahead, but also just for GPs to be aware of the physical effects of cancer treatment, um, as well as potential psychosexual issues when people are, you know, three to five years post-diagnosis and, you know, helping with sort of a more holistic view at that point after people have uh, come through the other side, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd agree with that. Sort of the key role in the sort of thing. I mean, I think it's also about thinking about cancer, isn't it? You know, we talk about these eight to nine, if you're full-time GP, eight to nine cancers in a year, if you're full-time, but hundreds or thousands of consultations that could be due to cancer. And I guess the difficulty is with the prediction rules at the moment, they are um, fairly complicated, not fully integrated with ele- with your electronic health records. So, for example, if, if something is a barrier to you consulting cons- in your consultation, you won't necessarily use it. So I think actually there's a lot of scope about this implementation science bit about actually getting these into normal workflow. Um, something like QRISC, we're all used to that. That's a bit simpler because you've got a sort of a strict threshold and then you kind of decide on statins or not. Um, but certainly I think there needs to be a lot more work into how do we utilise this further um, research and and how to get this into sort of clinical practice. Interestingly, John's um, editorial, he says, you'd need to use the risk prediction model and test 271 patients to diagnose one case uh, of myeloma. It just shows how rare it is. But interestingly, myeloma is something we can diagnose in primary care because we have access to the tool, which is the serum electrophoresis. So actually, I think the key thing is to, if you've got vague symptoms, vague back pain, you know, if you're going to do bloods, just think about doing that serum electrophoresis. Um, I think that's a key thing. Yeah, you run the risk of being flooded by different clinical um, prediction rules for every single yes, different yes. cancer, don't you? And yeah. It can be tricky. Yeah, I think that's a real challenge. As you say, the implementation bit is how this is all going to come together when you're with the consult, when you're in the, got the patient in front of you or when the results are in front of you and you're sitting there with your computer system and, you, you know, we all develop a certain amount of pop-up blindness as well. That's kind of real, it's a real challenge as you're clicking through them endlessly. Um, mm. So uh, there's an, these are fabulous, fantastic studies and really hopeful in terms of actually improving our chances. But it is about getting research into practice, isn't it? And as you so, identified there, there's quite a, um, there's quite a potential barrier for and that mm. that we need to get through as well. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Uh, so lots mm. of cancer papers that we've got there. Um, and um, I think one section we don't necessarily mention all the time, though I have a suspicion I might be mentioning it next month, is the um, letters section. Sam, one letter stuck out to you this month. Yeah, so coming back to the, the other big C at the moment, COVID, um, <laughs> yeah, there was a great letter from Luke Allen, a GP in Oxford and a research fellow at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine. And he asks, are we complicit in vaccine nationalism? Uh, and I, it really made me reflect and think about the current situation here in the UK. Um, and you know, one could argue that one of the very few success stories of the way we've managed coronavirus in this country is relating to vaccines in terms of developing the AstraZeneca vaccine and rolling it out very successfully to our population. And, you know, primary care has played a really key role in that. But Luke asks us, you know, 
there's that you know that great quote going around you know no one is safe from coronavirus until everyone is safe you know and it's all well and good that we are well on the way to vaccinating the entire uk adult population and we're talking about when are we going to get to go on our overseas holiday this summer but there's people around the world there's countries that haven't vaccinated anyone you know india at the moment is really struggling and you know yeah luke challenges us to say yes we're doing a fantastic job for our patients which is our primary clinical responsibility but do we have a wider responsibility in a global pandemic about how vaccines are distributed and issued and i personally found that really challenging to think about and i'm I'm hoping others read that letter and and yeah reflect on that as well i don't know if you guys have thoughts on on that yeah i mean the the, the interesting thing about luke's letter is that um, he wrote about a month ago and actually many of the overseas problems particularly in india of course weren't evident at that point Mm -hmm. and it's certainly something that um, there, I should say there's an interesting competing interest there as well. And I think that, you know, and that's why one of the things I really liked about this letter with Luke was that competing interest. Because, of course, we've now, most of us, we're all here medics here and we've had two jabs already. So, of course, now that we've had two jabs, there's a kind of, you know, it's now all very well and good for us to now start shouting about um, vaccine justice. Um, and But he, Luke recognises that and acknowledges it in the competing interests. But we do need to just, I think, I, I mean, I wholeheartedly agree, we need to try and turn away from an inward-looking policies and worrying about what life means for us. And and as we all know, if we don't get it right anyway, we'll just come back to, we, we, you can do it for altruistic reasons, and one would like to think we would do it for altruistic reasons, but we can also got to think about it for selfish reasons as well if you can't get to the altruism because um, we'll just end up with a, um, we'll just end up with a variant coming back. And, and putting us back to square one potentially. So um, yeah, great letter. What anyone else thought? I just think that it was uh, showed a lot of foresight, actually, as you said, because this letter was submitted before the current crisis in India. You know, India, country that's producing the AstraZeneca vaccine and outsourcing it, exporting it to other countries. Whereas, you know, if uh, there had been some more vaccine justice, as Luke mentions uh, i think you know maybe this entire crisis in india could have been potentially curtailed a bit differently so interesting yeah, i agree and you know we're living now with a, we've got this juxtaposition of science medicine versus uh, with politics and actually politics you know the politicians are making the decisions not always based on science or best interests so it's that real sort of tension i i can see you know between the politics of the you know the the nationalistic politics we've done really well we've got a vaccine bounce in the polls we're going to kind of roll that out versus actually you know the the challenge about um the global population and as you rightly say if not everyone if if the world is not vaccine none of us are and there's going to be variants coming back so i think we it's a real challenge for um all of us really yeah Mm -hmm. can i come back to so on the coronavirus theme and on sort of submissions to the BJGP with foresight, um, I've actually found the, the research article about the readability of GP websites by Guy Regani, uh, looking at practice websites in Scotland, really interesting. Because this study, they basically looked at all the GP practice websites they could find and analyse it for reading levels. Um, and they did this in March to December 2019. Um, you know, Again, very relevant now when we're asking our patients to engage with us so much more electronically i'm directing my patients to our website because it's got resources that i think are useful for them but i'm assuming they know how to access it and the contents at a level that they can engage with and 
And Guy Ragani's article suggests that the minority of GP practice websites in Wales are at a recommended level of simplicity for to cater for health literacy in the community. And again, I just made me think, oh gosh, yeah. Um, you know, yeah. what in this in this age of remote consulting and engaging with electronic means of communicating and consulting, you know, uh, who are we leaving behind here? And you know, what do we have to do to make it accessible for all of our patients, not just the tech savvy? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's an interesting. I, I should, I should I, you see, it was a Scottish paper, wasn't it? The, it was a Scot- it was a Scottish practices yeah. before we yeah. um, upset any of our colleagues <laughs> north <laughs> of the border. The, uh, Who else um, is a bit better? <laughs> yeah, um, the other thing <laughs> I would say as well is that um, it fits very nicely with the other research paper, the treatment burden, burden for patients with multimorbidity. It's that understanding that actually... And the treatment burden is all about people who've got these kind of multi-morbidities, comorbidities, and the kind of the, um, uh, you know, that high treatment burden and actually looking after multiple conditions um, is really, um, uh, you know, provided, you know, we all have a limited capacity to manage that kind of thing. And health literacy in particular also feeds into that. And that was very much the Regani paper around websites is that we probably don't pay enough attention to that. Mm -hmm. Um, Or we think we're paying attention to it, but actually sometimes we're getting it we're getting it quite wrong um, in all sorts of different ways. Um, before we go on, I just want to mention a couple of, as while we're on the letters, I wanted to mention as well um, another letter or two, which was the, um, and in particular, the one about antidepressant withdrawal at the very end. Um, and, and because it was a letter that was, um, we, we, we criticised the journal for us not covering because we had a mental health themed um, issue. But yeah, we didn't particularly cover the topic of antidepressant withdrawal. Um, and the only thing I'd say is it's a nice letter and does put forward the case and the resources really well for kind of where we should be looking for when it comes to withdrawing antidepressants. Um, I would say in our defence, we have published several articles on this in BJGP Life in the recent past. They've had a lot of traction, got a lot of interest, and I certainly would recommend them to people as well when it comes to antidepressant uh, withdrawal and uh, deprescribing generally. Uh, and we also had... Um, a qualitative paper published relatively recently on this topic too. So um, it's a nice letter, but we're not ignoring this topic completely. And I don't mean to sound defensive, but um, I do agree it's important. And I just wanted to sort of point people in the direction of some good articles and good papers that we've had as well on it. Um, Yeah, and that links in quite well. Uh, Just one last bit from me about the life and times from uh, what is wise GP and thinking about the intellectual and scholarly challenge of general practice. That's from Joanne. Reeve, who's Professor of Primary Care at Hull York, who um, founded the Wise GP project. And I totally agree with her, the team's comment there that every clinical and sort of patient interaction is an example of a clinical scholarship in action, including actually how do we take across the taper and reduce SSRIs as an example. So actually you think every single day you're, you're having all these clinical encounters where we could have scholarly questions and, and think about sort of um, coming up with, with, with potential research questions and answers from the literature. And I guess reflecting on that, uh, uh, not uh, there are less GPs doing academic training compared to hospital colleagues, and actually how maybe historically GP academia hasn't been on the radar. But you know we're proponents of that and want to sell it. And actually the benefits of longer training, more exposure to academic general practice, and increasing the uh, numbers of GPs doing research. Yeah, and on any level, you know, Wise GP is not about creating the next primary care professors all yep. over the place necessarily. You know, it's for anyone, even someone who's been, you know, right there at the front line clinically their whole career. There's nothing stopping you dipping your toe into, you know, any academic pursuit. And it's not just generating research papers that get published in the BJGP or 
other journals. Um, you know, it's all about just just getting involved. Even you know, yeah, thinking, you know, asking questions about from your clinical practice. Yep. Can we do this better? Can we do this differently? And you know, plain things like YSGP really support that. So I'd, I'd really recommend their website. It's a great resource if you if you want to explore that side of things further. Yeah, I think it's a good shout out. Yeah, and they very much emphasise the uh, the scholarly aspects, don't they? And the, actually recognising that it is a challenging intellectual pursuit. Just being a GP, I see you don't have to be an academic. It's just you know you're looking at evidence, trying to find the way through the best possible. Every clinical update course that people do um, is that all about that. Just trying to find the best way to take the evidence and put it into practice, and that's being scholarly. And yeah, I agree. It's a fantastic resource. Shout out to our college e-learning as well, which is great. And we take the research papers and how you can implement those in your practice. <laughs> do we need to do declarations of interest, Tom? <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, any other papers anyone wants to mention? I think we're there, aren't we? I, what I'm going to mention is a couple of long articles at the back. And I want to make sure we draw attention to these. There's a, there's a, um, a longer analysis article and a longer clinical practice article too. Um, and I really highly recommend these. The clinical practice article is all about kind of preconception health. It's quite a detailed clinical review. We could have almost had this as an analysis article and it kind of cuts across into clinical practice as well. And I think it's a really excellent uh, summary and understanding of where we are in terms of preconception health. And that's highly recommended. And the other one's a more critical analysis and it's around the lifestyle medicine movement. And I am, um, I strongly encourage you to read that and um, have a, you know, uh, and reflect on it. And uh, we're very happy. We re recognize that this is a topic that people may well have strong feelings about one way or the other. Uh, and we're very happy to um, uh, have a debate around this, use the e-letter function on bjgp.org. And we very much look forward to hearing everyone's contributions on this topic. Um, anything else, anyone? I think it's uh, just the analysis about the lifestyle medicine movement. It's definitely food for thought, you know, whether depending on which way you sort of your opinion lies on this. But I think it's an interesting article, as you say, just to read and reflect on and to think about how different sort of movements in medicine do take hold and what their associations are and taking a critical look at uh, some of these movements, I think. And uh, it'll be interesting to see what the reaction to this article will be. Okay. Listen, um, everybody, thank you so much for jumping on today. I know we're all busy with clinics and other things. I'm, I probably, uh, that's why I should say, that's why I sound like I'm in a broom cupboard today. <laughs> <laughs> it's been really great to speak to you all uh, and we'll, um, um, we'll do it again soon. And a little plug at the end for our cancer webinar oh, yes which is yeah we had a big discussion about cancer but actually it links in very nicely with our um, upcoming webinar 26th of may free registration seven o'clock and we'll be discussing some great papers uh, which we've recently covered in the bjgp around this the cancer area yeah you're absolutely right and completely my omission i need to mention the cancer webinar we've got we just had a, we obviously had a very successful health inequalities webinar just recently so we'd be delighted to have as many people as possible there we're talking about some of the papers we've published important uh, papers and we've got some um uh, excellent academics who are just going to go through those and um give us some of the key messages and there's a bit of a chance for a panel discussion so yeah please join us for that okay we'll say cheerio then and next time thanks Ian. thanks Ian. thank you Thank you very much for listening to this BJGP podcast. The original research papers and articles can be found at bjgp.org. The show notes and podcast audio can be found at bjgplife.com. Do share if you've enjoyed it. Subscribe via all the usual places, including Apple Podcasts, Google, 
Spotify or your podcaster of choice. Thanks again. Thanks again.